Isn't, isn't this exciting to be able to see uh, testimony after testimony after testimony of people who um, have had other people in their lives who are following Jesus, who drew, helped, the Father helped draw them to himself through their compelling lives. I just love to see those stories over and over again. Um, <clears throat> so you and I are probably, because of this last few days, collectively engorged. Is, is that fair? Is that fair to say we've got a little bit uh, fuller stomachs? We probably have a little bit lighter wallets as well, depending on how you interact with Black Friday and this weekend. But um, one of the things that's interesting about this time of year is that it's the season of giving, it's the season of generosity, and so it's, it's basically also this, the season of philanthropy, if you think about it. I know that between roughly mid-November and the end of December, we get something in the mail almost every day from someone that we've given money to in the past or an organization. And they're asking for year-end gifts because philanthropy is at a, at a peak time this time of year as people look at their um, their tax status and what needs to happen as well as just it's it's a time to give. And so I want to I interact with you a little bit and ask you, when I say the word philanthropy, what, what kind of comes to mind for you? When, when I say the word philanthropy, what comes to mind? Rich guy? <laughs> Someone who's rich giving some money? So, yeah, okay, Adam. What else? Sharing wealth? Yeah, Brenda? Any, anyone else? When, you, when I say philanthropy, what else comes to mind? Anything else? Generosity, Michael, in general? Yeah, just generosity, philanthropy. Webster's, uh, Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines philanthropy as uh, goodwill to fellow members of the human race. Goodwill to members of the fellow, fellow members of the human race. Now, what I want to do is <clears throat> I want to challenge and press that understanding of what philanthropy is this morning because I think it's not a full understanding of what philanthropy truly is. The Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw in 1896, here's what he said. He said that a rich man, and Adam, this goes back to what you had said. He said, <clears throat> a rich man does not really care whether his money does good or not, provided he finds his conscience eased and his social status improved by giving it away. He also said that one buys moral credit by signing a check, which is easier than turning a prayer wheel. See, for Shaw, he was making this argument that at the heart of philanthropy is this desire to ease our own consciences and to look good uh, amongst our peers, which ironically undermines, if you think about it, it undermines the idea of philanthropy altogether. So we are in this series called Compelling Christianity. We've been taking a look at the letter of Titus. We're going to finish that letter up today. And what we're going to find is that Paul is going to challenge this idea of philanthropy as we understand it in general terms. We also are going to find that he's going to call us as followers of Jesus to be philanthropists in the purest sense of the word. And so we're going to we're going to look at this together. Grab a Bible. Um, if you don't have one, Scott's got the red ones there. I would encourage you to grab one and read with me. We're going to be in uh, 844, page 844, which is uh, in the red Bible. It's going to be in Titus chapter 3 as we kind of finish up this letter here. If you need a Bible, uh, raise your hand. I would strongly encourage you to follow along with me. Now, if you're here this morning and you haven't been part of this series to date, you're kind of like, what is Titus? And what, I don't, I mean, help me plug in. So let me plug you into where we're at. This is a letter. Uh, that was written by a guy named Paul, the Apostle Paul, St. Paul, you might know him. He also had another name, a Hebrew name, Saul. And Saul at one time was a Pharisee, a, a Jewish Pharisee, who hated followers of Jesus. He hated followers of Jesus and was actually uh, in pursuit of eliminating Christianity, if you would, early on. But one day as he was on the way to do that, he uh, encountered apparently the resurrected Jesus Christ and it changed his whole life. 
it changed him from being the greatest persecutor of the church to the greatest ambassador for Jesus in the Roman world at the time. And he was a Roman citizen, so he began to go wherever he could to share this good news that he came to experience in Christ. One of the places that he went was an island called Crete. And Crete uh, was a very interesting place. When, I, when you think of Crete, I think, Dan, was it you that talked about Tortuga? Did you talk about Tortuga? So Tortuga from the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, maybe, maybe a modern-day picture of us thinking about Crete. Or you think of Mardi Gras in New Orleans, maybe a little bit of Crete going on there, Las Vegas kind of going on there. So <clears throat> this was the context that the followers of Christ were finding themselves in. Very little morality, a lot of corruption. And so there was this... this this desire, potential desire, to fight against that culture. And there was also this desire that was being led by some, some Jewish folks over here who were saying, hey, just, just withdraw from culture, if you would, and, and, and be over here and withdraw completely. Paul says, no, no, we're not going to do either of those things. We're not going to wage a culture war, and we're not going to withdraw. What we're going to do is we're going to live compelling lives among the people that we are with. We're going to com- be compelling Christians. Now, I have a couple of bumper stickers that I think are relevant to us to kind of see the dichotomy of of what we find in our context today. One of them is this first one, which is uh, you see exist, and this is a response to coexist. I'll show you later. So this is the idea that, hey, um, let's make sure that we've got an AK-47 to fight against whatever it is that we don't believe or agree with, okay? So the idea is we're going to exist. The opposite is this next bumper sticker, and this is, I think, a reaction to it, is coexist. Okay, and that is, so hey, whatever religion, whatever, it's all good. Let's just assimilate all at the same time to whatever is going well or at the time it is uh, um, helpful or whatever. And Paul says, we're not doing this and we're not doing that. We're doing something which is a third way, which is the truest form of philanthropy. And we're going we're gonna to digest that together. So let's read Titus chapter 3. Verses 1 through 8. Before I do, I want to pray as we open God's word here. Gracious Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that we have been given your word, that Paul wrote these words, um, that they are living and active, and they are relevant to us today. I ask that you would show us how this applies directly to our lives this morning. Um, This wasn't written to us, but it was written for us, and so that we can apply this in our context. Help us to be compelling followers of Jesus Christ as we... as we unpack your word, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Chapter 3 of Titus, verses 1 through 8. Here's what he says. He writes this to Titus. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. I'm going to stop there. This is God's word. Now, what I want you to see is I've looked at this for a week and you've just looked at this for the first time. So I want to show you what's going on here. There is a good works sandwich here 
In verse 1, he says, hey, I want you to have the people be ready to do that which is good. And then in verse 8, he says, I want them to be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. So there's be ready and there's devote yourselves to doing what is good. It's this good sandwich. And in the middle, what we're going to see is the definition of true philanthropy is unpacked. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through the beginning, the middle, and the end and see how these things play out for us. So in verse 1, what Paul is doing is he's saying, hey, I need you to be people who are subject to rulers and authorities. Not that you're going to just be doormats, but that you're going to be people who are obedient and you're going to live with this, with this uh, interaction with people in the culture that is respectful, that is one of humility, not one of pride. I think so often what we do is we live in a posture of pride. Nobody's going to tell us what to do. Nobody. And C.S. Lewis talks about pride in his book, Mere Christianity. Here's what he says pride does. Pride is competitive by its very nature. As long as there is one man in the whole world more powerful, richer, or cleverer than I, he is my rival and my enemy. Then he goes on to say, in God, here's the, here's, here's the problem. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all, and therefore you also don't know humility. But he says we are to be humble towards all men. And Paul can, Paul can call Christ followers to that kind of humility because we've seen humility demonstrated in Jesus Christ, who had all authority in heaven and earth but humbled himself in infathomable ways. Now he's not saying, I think, be a doormat. He's saying be ready and anticipate to do whatever is good to make an impact in the lives and the relationships that you have. Uh, one example of this that I've seen recently is that about, I don't, know if you, I don't know if you noticed this, there is some racial tension in our country. Have you noticed that? There is a little bit of racial tension in our country. And um, that may, may be something that you're tense about, maybe something you're upset about. Um, one person who was sort of upset about that was Marsha Temez. It's part of our West Bend site. And so about a year ago, what she did was she said, I want to think about being ready to do what is good. And so she got a group together of people, one of whom is helping her, Christian Navalis. He was in the video a couple of weeks ago, or maybe last week. I don't know when you showed Christian, but last week. So uh, they've got together. And what they're doing is they're hold, holding some meetings for um, followers of Jesus to come together to learn what it looks like to be those who seek racial reconciliation, to be proactive about it. This is kind of what it looks like to be ready to do what is good. And so they're educating themselves on how to be proactive about racial reconciliation. Now, for us, one very brief application, I have some applications at the end, but one brief application is this. He says, do not slander, be peaceable and considerate. So I want you to think about if you have a meter, a slander meter. What does that slander meter look like for you? How often do you find yourself slandering others? Okay. I know this last week I was uh, guilty of this. And I was tempted a couple times extra to do this more just because of relational tension. And I know that because of this last week that there was a chance that you also were tempted for some slandering because of Thanksgiving. Because your families, right? Is it just mine? Is mine the only one? You get together your immediate and extended families for a time and all of a sudden... You, your things are raised up that have been out there for a long time. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like it's, I know my family's not the only one. I know in West Bend the family's pretty well. I think you're probably with me. So you've got the, the, the family relative who doesn't come because they're just mad at this other relative. You've got the one who creates drama every time. 
You've got the one who doesn't talk to anybody, withdraws and, and secludes themselves, watches TV all day. Do, am I alone in this? You, you, okay, you guys know what I'm talking about. So some of you are like, Troy, I have none of that. We don't have any of that. And so that's what, here's, here's your challenge. That's because you're not interacting with anybody. The only way you're going to have racial ten, or relational tension is you're going to interact with others. And I think one of the things that we can do is as followers of Christ, we can actually find the grace of God in Jesus and we realize that there's other people who have found that same grace. And we're like, oh man, you get it. You get it with me. Let's, spend, let's hang out. We have this really important thing that's common. It's who we are. But then what we do is we stop spending time with people who don't follow Jesus. We stop spending time with people who disagree with what we think. And we withdraw. And, and Paul's like, this is not what he wants. He doesn't want the followers of Christ on Crete to withdraw, but to be ready to do whatever is good. Because that is, at a minimum, what, what they should be doing is philanthropy in the common sense, is engaging. But he calls us to more than common philanthropy. He calls us to Christ-centered philanthropy. I'm going to get that to a minute. One of the reasons that the followers of Jesus on Crete were to show humility is because they were guilty of everything they were experiencing. It's easy for us to say, oh, look at all those people. But Paul says, no, we, he says, we too, he includes himself. We were like that. We were hating one another. We were malicious. We were envious. We were doing all these things. This is what he says. They become enemies, like, like Lewis says. When anyone's richer or happier or better looking, whatever. Um, about a year and a half ago, researchers at the University of Pittsburgh conducted a study about the effects of social media habits on the moods of users. And the research determined that the more time adults use social media, the more likely they are to be depressed. Why, you might ask, would that be the case? Here's what the study concludes. The exposure to highly idealized representations of peers on social media elicits feelings of envy and the distorted belief that others lead happier, more successful lives. You know what I have not seen on Facebook? I have not seen a couple do a selfie of a, of a fight. I mean, maybe it's out there somewhere, but I just don't see couples being like, oh yeah, just watch this business right up in here. They start going in a fight and be like, post that one on Facebook. Here's us getting into a big fight. Do you see that? I mean, maybe it's out there. But what we do is we take the best part of our lives and we post that out there, and then everyone else is like, oh, I wish I had that life. That's not the full picture. It's this highly idealized version of ourselves that then creates envy. Because we see, oh, I want that. Two years ago, a study published in the Journal of Social and Clinical Psychology conducted by researchers at at the University of Houston, they found that an increase in Facebook usage has a correlation with depressive symptoms and leads to a psychological phenomenon that's called social comparison. Social comparison. We just compare ourselves to one another, which leads to pride, not humility. We compare and then envy and malice forms in our hearts and we hate one another. Um... About a year ago, my twins, they're nine years old, they had saved up some money from uh, a little business they started, and they wanted to make a big purchase. They wanted to, to bring a pet into the Lather home. Now, uh, my wife and I, we've concluded there's already a zoo uh, in our house, so we don't need, I mean, with our children, we don't need any animals to add to the mix. But the girls were able to convince us that they wanted to get fish. And so we're like, you know what, that seems pretty harmless. Fine, let's get some fish. So we went over to Petco, um, and I met a gal there who is part of our West Bend gatherings now. I didn't know at the time. Um, her name's Jennifer. And Jennifer, we were telling her what's going on, and we got twins. She's like, oh, I got the perfect thing. You can get a betta fish tank. And she's like, you know how betta fish work? And I'm like, I don't know, per se. She's like, here's how it works. You can take uh, betta fish, you hate each other. 
and they'll kill each other. But you take one tank and you put a little divider right down the middle and they can have their own little space and they can kind of try to, but they won't hurt each other, but they can kind of come at it. And I was like, ooh, it's almost like this subconscious thing of my twins to begin with, right? Like if we just put a little divider in their room, this is kind of what they do. So anyway, so we go in there with their money and we, and Jennifer hooks us up with this beta fish tank. I think we've got a picture of a, of a tank that looks like this. Too. There we go. It sort of looks, look, yeah, it looks just a lot like that. Anyway, so we get these two fish, and we have them home for about a day. And I'm out in the kitchen, I hear this scream. Ah! And I run into my girl's room, and I, I'm like, what is going on? They're like, the fish! They, they got through! They, the one got through to the other side, and they're like attacking each other. So all of a sudden, I become a beta fish fight breaker-upper. Like, when does a father, like, this, being a parent is bizarre, is it not? Like you start doing these things you never thought you'd do. I'm reaching in there trying to like keep beta fish from killing each other and put them back on the other side. So those fish lasted about a week before they both killed each other and died, okay? Now, what's amazing about, what I like, appreciate about Petco is that Petco has a policy that if you take, like your fish die, you can take them back and get new ones, which I was like, this must have happened before. <laughs> I wasn't the only one. So I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm taking them up. And my girls spent their hard-earned money. These fish lasted a week. So I took them back there. Dead fish. Hey, can I have new ones? They're like, sure, no questions asked. Give you two new fish. Take those two new fish on these beta fish, put them in the tank. A week later, they kill each other again. Like, they're dead. I, like, I had the thing in there right, and it's all, but they, they got through there. So my wife was like, Troy, you cannot go back to Petco with these two dead fish. I will not let you. She's, she's got pride issues. She does. She doesn't want to take those dead fish. I'm like, what's wrong? She's like, you can't. It's embarrassing. I'm like, fine. I'll go buy one more fish then. I said, but here's the thing. I told the girls, I'm not going to buy two. I'm going to buy one. We're going to let her have the run of the thing. And they're like, fine, as long as it stays alive. Well, Ruby is alive. Ruby's alive. Ruby, I don't know if they named her after you or not, but I mean, they named their fish Ruby. Ruby's been around for a year, okay? So uh, what is the point? Uh, The point is this. Fish are meant to be fried (laughs) and eaten. On Friday nights. That's right. They are. No, that's not the point. The point is this. Uh, we're beta fish. We're beta fish. We're constantly coming at each other. We're constantly envying. We're constantly dividing, coming at one another. In fact, you don't even need to have another beta fish. You can put a mirror up next to the tank and it'll just go at it. It'll just, God, God, I'm going to get you. Like That's your reflection. And that's what we do. That's what we do. In our sin, we, we kind of attack each other. We're not humble. You know, we look at other people's posts on Facebook when we maybe we want to be rejoicing for them. We maybe can say we like it, but in our hearts, we're envious very often. And we're divisive. And this, by the way, makes philanthropy, even common philanthropy, really difficult. And so what do we do with that? What do we do? Well, Paul says, here's what you do. The gospel the gospel is what you need. And so in verses 3 through 7, he, says, he unpacks it. He says, At one time we were like this, but, huge but, but when the kindness and, God, the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, in other words, when Jesus came, something happened. You want to know what happened, folks, when Jesus came? Philanthropy. Philanthropy happened when Jesus came. And I mean that literally. If you look in the Greek of what Paul wrote, he wrote the word philanthropia happened. 
And so when Webster defines it as the goodwill towards fellow members of the human race, they're not encapsulating what's really going on. This isn't, hey, let's be nice to each other. Philanthropy is really demonstrated in God the Father sending his son. Philanthropy came. Jesus is philanthropy. He is the love of human the love for humanity is demonstrated by the Father. And then in verse 5, uh, Paul writes that God has saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So those who have trusted in Jesus have been saved by a rebirth, and they're also being, being saved by a renewal of the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, is not something that people are doing themselves. It's a passive thing. They're not cleaning themselves. They're not washing themselves. They don't birth themselves. You know what? Have you ever heard anyone say, yeah, you should have seen me at birth. I totally rocked it. Have you ever heard anyone say that? No, no one's like, oh yeah, who was heads down? This guy, oh yeah, heads down. Like, no one's saying that. No one's saying, hey, you know what? Birth came and I was totally ready for it. Like, you just were birthed. You don't birth yourself. You try, to, try pulling that off to your mom. Go tell your mom, man, remember when I rocked my birth? See what she says. We don't birth ourselves and we don't rebirth ourselves either. God's Holy Spirit does that. One of the reasons I was thinking about the fish tank this week is because I went in to the girl's room and saw Ruby's tank, and it's nasty. It kind of looks like this. This isn't a picture of it, but it's kind of it's just nasty, okay? And so I'm looking at this tank, and I'm like, oh, man, this would be so awesome if Ruby could clean her own tank. She can't. He's totally worthless when it comes to that. Someone has to reach in, pull that fish out of that mess and clean that tank in the same way God has to. We can't wash ourselves. He's got to pull us out of the filth of our own sin. He's got to pull us out of the filth of our own culture sin, if you would. And then when he does that, he does it through the Holy Spirit. He gives to us in Christ. And he doesn't give us just enough. He doesn't like put us, this isn't a spot clean. He says he gives his spirit generously. He pours out his spirit generously. When Jesus was on the cross, he didn't give just a few drops of blood. He gave it all. He spilled all of his blood. He gave it generously and richly, which then, according to Paul, justifies us before the Father, makes us clean before the Father, and allows us to be heirs of an eternal life. That, this is what philanthropy is, brothers and sisters. That God the Father sent the Son. That God demonstrated his love for humanity in Jesus Christ, the ultimate philanthropist, the ultimate philanthropy. And therefore, when it says be subject to authorities, we can be subject to authorities. We don't have to have our pride in the way. Why? Because he who had all authority in heaven and earth given to him submitted himself to authorities. We can be humble because he who being in very nature God took on the form of a certain servant and humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. But when we are family, when we're philanthropists in the truest sense of the word, what that means is that by the Spirit daily, we're going to be we're going to be walking as Jesus walked. We're going to be talking as Jesus talked. We're going to be saying what Jesus said. We're going to be loving what Jesus loved. And when we do, we're going to have lives that are compelling because they're going to be lives that are lived that reflect Jesus. And this is what, this is what Paul wants Titus to know. He tells him this message. And then he says, as he concludes, he says, this, verses 3 through 7, is trustworthy. And you have to stress it. Look in verse 8. He says, I want you to stress these things. You have to keep stressing this, the gospel. He's like, what I just wrote in verses 3 through 7, you've got to stress it. People who follow Jesus need to hear it over and over again. People who don't follow Jesus need to hear it because it's the most compelling message that there is to be heard. 
And when they hear this message, they will, you know what's going to happen is they're going to devote themselves to doing good. True philanthropy. Christ-centered philanthropy. Because of God's love for humanity, we then are able to love. That's why the greatest commandment is love God. When we understand what his love is, then we can love our neighbor as ourselves. When John wrote in one of his letters, he, he wrote this. He said, this is how God showed his love among us. This is how God showed his philanthropy. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And that doesn't just mean in the sense of eternal life. It means now. I'm currently reading a book called A Practical Guide to Culture. I'm reading it because I'm almost 40 and I feel like I'm, I need to understand the 20-something culture a little bit better. I'm feeling like an old man now. So I'm, I'm reading this book. And in this book, they talk about culture and they use this. They say, they use these words. They say, culture tends to shape us most deeply by what it presents as normal. We are creatures of cultural habit. Our loves, our longings, our loyalties, and our labors can become products of the liturgies our culture imposes. In other words, there's liturgies in our culture. They may not always be religious liturgies, but there's things that we do. We live according to them, but rarely think through them. Unintentionally, we become culture-shaped rather than intentional about shaping culture. You see, what, what Paul Paul didn't want the, the, the followers of Christ on, on Crete to do is to have their loves, longings, loyalties, and labors shaped by their culture. They wanted, he wanted them to have their loves, longings, loyalties, and labors shaped by Jesus. Because when they do that, they're going to be living completely different. It's not the culture war. It's not the withdrawal. It's this. It's living Christ in the midst of our culture and shaping our culture. I think about, some of you may be aware, so Kim Munninger, our children's pastor, has done something where she brought in a a trainer from Minnesota to train about 40 to 50 people uh, who who are part of us um, to take care of kids who've been traumatized because there's a lot of trauma going around in our culture. And so rather than responding to that out of anger and waging a culture war, she's, she's going to create a culture where we have people who are ready for any kind of good work by being equipped to deal with children who are traumatized and, and pointing to them to the ultimate philanthropist. I think about um, Dave and Marilyn, I believe, are, are part of a, a group of seniors who are seeking to be philanthropists in the truest sense of the word to other seniors in our midst to show them what true philanthropy is like and, and doing that together as a group, seeking to reach out and serve and change culture I think about um, a gal named Koa who is an educator and a foster mom who started a, cl- uh, a uh, clothes closet where people can donate clothes to foster kids because she knows the one who said, hey, when you clothe these people, you're also, it's the same as clothing me. The one who clothed her with robes of righteousness, she wants to clothe others as well. I think about um, Dave Swartz, who is the president of the Zaki Christian uh, School's Board of Directors, who is one of us who's trying to create a culture where school and uh, parents and church are working together to raise up leaders who follow and love Jesus. I think about our teachers, who I know who are part of the districts that they're in, who are doing that same thing and creating the culture in a classroom as best as they can. It's not waging war against or withdrawing from, but influencing the students that they have for Jesus Christ. We could go on and on and on but I want to end with three brief applications for you from this text. The first one is the one that Paul gives to Titus. He says, I want you to stress these things. So here's your first application. Stress what you read in verses 3 through 7. That's the gospel. Stress it to yourself. Stress it to one another. And stress it to those who do not, who do not know it. We have to stress the gospel. What, what I would encourage you to do is think about this. What if you made a little deal with yourself and you said, you know what I'm going to do? For every Facebook status I look at, I'm going to read a chapter of the gospel. I'm going to read God's status update. 
What, what if for every uh, Snapchat you sent, you said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually see a Snapchat from God and see what he wants to chat with me about? Because we have to be in here to understand the good news. Secondly, not only do we need to um, stress these things, we need to stress it in community. We need to do this together. The, the followers of Christ and Crete were more compelling because they were living life together, not in a way that was withdrawn, but a way that was open towards and in front of the culture that they were doing this in, inviting those in to see what it looks like to love, to be, to be humble, to be considerate and peaceable, and to do that in the midst together. So whether that's a discipleship group or a small group, a mission community, whatever, we, we can't be doing this alone, and we're not meant to be. And lastly, I would just have you anticipate opportunities to be ready to do what is good and, and bring the truest sense of philanthropy. So what that means is when you hear slander coming out of your mouth or when you hear slander coming out of someone else's mouth, you need to recognize it as a red flag and say, I can bring philanthropy to this right now. I can bring the, the ultimate philanthropy of Jesus Christ to this situation, whether it's my own mouth or whether it's someone else's mouth. When I see hatred being experienced between other people, whether I'm the part of it or not, I need to see a red flag go up and say there is an opportunity for me to be ready to stress that which is true and right, which is Christ in the midst of this situation. We have to be ready and to engage, to engage in our culture and bring to, bring to bear Jesus Christ, who is philanthropy in its truest sense. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are compelling, that your message is compelling, that you stopped at nothing to make it so. That you don't want us just to do good, but you want us to understand he who is good. Just like when the rich man came to Jesus and he said, good teacher, and Jesus said, why do you call me good when only God is good? It's because Jesus was God, himself in the flesh, sent by the Father to empower us by the Spirit Father, I thank you for that. I thank you for your son who is philanthropy. May we live lives that walk the way that he walked, talk the way that he talked. May our loves and longings and labors and loyalties be those that which Jesus has demonstrated for us. And in so doing, may you make us a compelling family. May you make us a compelling community for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.